Today's scripture reading comes from the book of Romans, chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. Listen now to the word of the Lord. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. This is the word of the Lord. Lord be with you. Please pray with me. Gracious God, we thank you for this day that you have made. And once again, we ask for your spirit to indwell in us to overflowing. May we hear your word. And in that hearing, help us to be strengthened and to obey. We ask in the name of Jesus Christ, our risen Lord. Amen. So last Sunday, I said that Paul's letter to the Romans is a defense and an explication of his claim that the gospel, the good news of God, the good news of God's righteousness, synonymous with God's salvation, has been revealed in Jesus Christ, and that this is the power of salvation to everyone who believes. In the rest of chapter 1 and through the end of chapter 4, Paul lays out why this salvation is necessary with a long indictment against humanity and humanity's universal sinfulness. He presents a case not only against sinners and against atheists, but also against the moralists and the religious. For evidence, it's not just what makes the news. We can turn to the ongoing war in Ukraine or the latest mass shooting in Buffalo yesterday. And we can also turn our gaze inward, and any sort of honest assessment of ourselves will reveal this universal sinfulness. C.S. Lewis said, For the first time I examined myself with a seriously practical purpose. And when he did that, he says, And there I found what appalled me, a zoo of lusts, a bedlam of ambitions, a nursery of fears, a harem of fondled hatreds. My name was Legion. We are all under the just judgment of God together and as individuals. 
And yet Paul writes that into this great human crisis, that in the reality of everyone falling short, the righteousness of God, that is the salvation of God, has been revealed. And it is by this righteousness of God in which we live. And so in these early chapters, Paul uses illustrations from all arenas of life to make his point that we have been made right. He will use the language of the courts to say that we have been justified. He will use the language of the slave markets to say that we have been freed and redeemed. He will use the language of the temple to say that a sacrifice of atonement has been made for us. He will use the language of history to talk about the the Passover and how our sins have been passed over. And he will use the language from finance and accounting to say that our sins are no longer counted against us. And all of this, Paul says, is the work of God. It's what Martin Luther called the passive righteousness of God. It is not something that we do, not something that we earn, but something that is given to us entirely by faith, by the grace of God. We can do nothing except accept the acceptance of God. And that brings us to our reading today. Karl Barth, arguably the most influential theologian of the 20th century, I'm getting at least one nod, calls this the most important chapter in the entire Bible. I'm not sure that I'd agree, but there's a good case to be made for that. Our reading begins, therefore, since we are justified by faith. And so this is Paul's conclusion after he has laid out this case for the first four chapters. Therefore, since this is true, everything that he said so far is true, since we are no longer under the wrath of God, since we have been freed and saved, since we have come to believe by faith, since all of this is true, therefore, we are now going to experience something brand new or something much more than just being saved. Many Christians, I think, ignore this little word, since. They conclude... Therefore, we are justified by faith. The end. I've been saved by grace. I've been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. Praise the Lord. Period. It's like a child's fairy tale, you know? The young prince saves the even younger princess. And we are told, or we assume, they live happily ever after. We are to assume that the next, I don't know, 70 years of their lives, nothing bad, nothing sad, or nothing even interesting happens for the rest of their lives. Likewise, I think some people think that all that matters is getting saved. right? That the whole point of evangelism is to get someone to a point where they're either baptized, or maybe confirmed, or become a member of the church, or they're able to articulate, you know, what justification is, or that um, they can say, you know, I have accepted Jesus as my Lord and Savior. Now the work is done, and we can just quit. But that's not it. Far from it, Paul says. It's like saying that the whole goal of marriage is the wedding. The wedding may be awesome and expensive, But it's just the legal start of something far more. There's so much more. Or it's like getting accepted to the college that you want to attend. It's great you got accepted. But there's so much more. It's just the start of something new. Like taking out loans. 
Or it's like having a baby. The goal isn't just to get that baby out with all due respect to the women, right? It's the start of a new life. There's a whole life that is to be lived. Paul has laid out the foundations for justification, for the righteousness of God, the salvation of God in Jesus Christ, which is better news than anything we can possibly imagine. Yes. But he says, having laid out that foundation, he says, there is more. It's like the prisoner who has been pardoned. It's like the cancer patient who has been cured. It's like the destitute whose debts have been wiped clean. It's great news. But now the life can begin. The prisoner can get out of the prison and live a productive life. The cancer patient cured now can live and play with their children. The destitute now, freed of those debts, can begin to build an entirely new kind of life. There's so much more. Since we have been justified by faith, here's what comes next, Paul says. Here's a list of the richness of what is to come. First, he says, verse 1, Therefore, since we are justified by faith, he says, we have peace with God. We have peace with God. And here Paul is certainly thinking about the Hebrew word and the Hebrew idea of shalom. It's not just a cessation of hostilities. It's not that we have reached a kind of indifferent truce with God. It's that we have this well-being, this wholeness, a restoration, a harmony of relationships with God and with others and with ourselves. It's an all-embracive kind of peace of well-being. In this present life, in this present life, it can include things like health, longevity, and prosperity. It is the flourishing of all of life. And Paul writes in Ephesians 2, Jesus Christ is our peace. Jesus Christ is our peace. He makes possible the peace that we can have with God. And then there's more. Verse 2, he writes, Through him we also have, in addition to the peace with God, we also have obtained access by faith into this grace. Not only peace, but we have this access by faith into this grace. You know what access is, right? It's, it's having the ability to approach someone. And here, this is a word that was used to describe the kind of ushering in that you would be given to meet kings and royalty. So again, it's not something that you earn. It's you're being brought into. You're being granted access, not because you deserve it, but because it has been given to you. And again, the emphasis here is that it is the work of God in Jesus Christ. Hebrews 7 says, he is able to save those who approach God through him. That access has been made for us through Jesus Christ. I think I've shared this story uh, about Abraham Lincoln before, but you know, it's one of the many things that I really um, tried to imitate uh, from his life. And that is that even in the middle of the Civil War, Lincoln's children knew that they always had access to him. Even when he's in the middle of a cabinet meeting with his generals, his kids could walk in on those meetings and knew that they would not be yelled at or, or whatever, right? That they would get a moment with Abraham Lincoln and then be ushered out, but he would, they would get that moment. They knew that they could interrupt him without being yelled at or being punished. I, I think that's a good example, Right? Just as God has given us that kind of access, 
I hope all of you, those of you who are parents, you give your kids that kind of access. You know, don't let your kids grow up thinking, I can't interrupt mom or dad because they're too busy right now. Let them know they can always interrupt you. We have peace, we have access, but there is more. Verse 2 continues, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. We rejoice in hope of the glory of God. I've told you many times that the biblical word for hope does not mean maybe, which is the way we normally use it, right? We say things like, I hope the Buffalo Bills win the Super Bowl this year. Okay, I know we don't say it, only I say it, but right? We hope, it's like wishful thinking. It's wishful thinking, but that is not the way the Bible uses it. It's not like, I didn't study, but I hope I pass my test. That's the way we use the word hope, but that is not the biblical word for hope. In the Bible, it is a confident expectation, a confident expectation, something that will come true because God is the one who has promised it. Hope is not a maybe, but it is a confident certainty. J.B. Phillips talks about this word as a happy certainty. It's knowing that this is going to happen. The hope that we have is not, well, maybe, you know, 51% 51% chance. I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to risk it because it's a good chance it's going to happen. No. It's a certainty because God has promised. On our part, the hope requires faith because we don't, we don't have that kind of confidence. But the hope that we are given is absolute from the perspective of God. We have peace. We have access into grace. And we have this hope of the glory of God. But there's more. Verse 3, he says, not only that, not only all this, but we rejoice in our suffering. We rejoice in our suffering. Now, this seems a little bit out of place because here's, he's talking about all these other good things. But now he's saying we also have suffering. Because Paul knows, he's a realist. He knows we can have peace and grace and access. But he also knows we're going to have suffering in this life. And it's quite remarkable because in our culture, we are so against any kind of suffering, any small annoyance or inconvenience we label as suffering, and we do everything we can to avoid it. But the biblical writers, they find joy in suffering. It's not that trials or suffering is some good that we want to seek out, right? But it's something that can be endured and rejoiced in because of what it can lead to. They see that there is an instrumental use for suffering. For example, you can suffer the pain of studying while everyone else is playing so that you can pass the test or pass the class. Or you can suffer the pain of exercise while everyone else is watching Netflix and eating potato chips. You can endure the suffering because you know that that suffering will lead to something greater, whether it's passing the class or better health. And Paul says suffering produces endurance, which produces proven character, which produces hope, certainty, a happy certainty. Hope is the final link in a chain that begins 
with suffering. And so he says, because of that, because of what it leads to, we can rejoice even in our suffering. Peace, grace, hope, joy even in suffering. But Paul says there's more. Verse 5, God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. And Paul here is simply reminding us of what Jesus himself said to his disciples. John 16, it is to your advantage that I go away because only when I go away can this Holy Spirit come to you. I will send him to you. When we become Christians, Paul writes in Ephesians 1 that we are marked with the seal of the Holy Spirit, that this is the pledge of our inheritance. You and I are given the Spirit of God as a pledge, as an eternal guarantee of our ultimate glory. Peace, grace, hope, glory, joy, and suffering, the love of God pour into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. That's a lot. That's a lot. And it may sound like Paul is trying to sell you something like one of those old cheesy infomercials. I was thinking about my favorite one was probably the old uh, Ginsu knives. You got, anybody remember those? Man, I used to love those knives. It was an amazing knife that never needed sharpening, right? And you would watch this commercial, and they would, like, show how great it is. It, they would cut through, like, a can, right? And then immediately afterwards, they'd cut these super thin slices of tomatoes, never need sharpening. And it's yours for only $9.95, right? And so call this 1-800 toll-free number. And so you grab your rotary landline phone, <laughs> and you're about to dial that number. But then they say, wait, there's more. If you order in the next five minutes, we'll send you a second knife completely free. You just need to pay for shipping and handling, which turns out to be $5.95, right? So now you're really excited to make that call. But then they say, wait, there's still more. If you order right now, we'll throw in six steak knives made with the same blade. What an incredible, incredible offer. How could anyone possibly refuse? And it comes with a 50-year guarantee. I remember as, a, as an impressive, impressionable teenager, wow, why would anybody ever want to have any other knife than this knife? This is the greatest knife ever. Why would anyone own any other knife? That's next year's Mother's Day present. <laughs> we are, of course, right to be skeptical of promises that sound too good to be true. And Paul agrees. It really is hard to believe. And so you might hear him saying, there's more and more and more, sounding like some salesman trying to pitch you a bad set of goods. But then he reminds us of how and why this is at all possible. This is not a fanciful wish. This is not an empty promise. It's possible, he says, because Jesus died for us while we were still sinners. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were still helpless and powerless and enemies with no way of escape, Jesus Christ died for us. And Paul, you know, I think we can imagine with Paul, yeah, you know, there might be a case 
There are those people who would be willing to die to save the life of someone else. A good person, he says, right? We can imagine that. And I imagine many of you would be willing to do something like that. We admire those who give their lives for the sake of their family or their friends. We hear stories from the war of soldiers willing to lay down their life, jumping on a hand grenade or something to save the lives of the rest of their platoon. We hear the story of mothers shielding their children in terrorist attacks so that that child can live. Or about firemen who rush into burning buildings to rescue strangers. We admire those stories. We can, we can relate. We're inspired by them. We're moved by such stories in literature and in the movies. Tale of Two Cities, The Last of the Mohicans, Saving Private Ryan, Titanic, and even The Avengers Endgame. We're moved by the sacrifices that they make. But it's always understood, it's always understood that those sacrifices are made for friends and for family or at least for those who are either worthy or will be worthy of that sacrifice. What if in the movie Titanic, for example, and I hope this is not a spoiler alert for anyone, what if in Titanic, what if Jack, instead of giving his life so that his beloved Rose could live, what if instead he gave his life so that the cowardly character Hockley played by Billy Zane, could live. What if he did that instead? We would not watch that movie. We'd scream like, no, don't do that. Give your life for Rose instead. Yet, Paul says, this is what Christ has done. In verse, Paul says, for while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Christ died for the ungodly. Not those deserving. Not because you were a little bit better than everybody else. The ungodly, the sinners, the powerless, the enemies of God. Pastor James Van Tholen, in his sermon on this passage, he points out that the Greek here is even more emphatic. That Paul repeats the word still. It says literally, still, for a while we were still weak. Terrible grammar but very good theology. We have to be reminded again and again and again that Christ died while we were still sinners, while we were still ungodly. And Paul says, since Jesus did that, don't you think that God will do far more now that you have been saved? If Christ died for you when you were in sin, when you were hopeless, when you were lost, don't you think that now that you have been saved and justified and redeemed and freed, don't you think that God will do much more for you? If God has done what is unimaginable to rescue the unrighteous, to those who have been separated, don't you think that all these gifts now, God is more than willing to lavish upon you now that you have been made right with him? In other words, God has already done the most. Won't he do also the least? God has already given us the best. Don't you think 
he will also give us the rest. And Paul ends this section with one final illustration, one more explanation of what it is this righteousness of God is. In addition to justification, redemption, atonement, covering, reckoning, he offers one more word, and that word is reconciliation. This is a great word. You've probably forgotten, but let, so let me remind you again that the Greek here for reconciliation is katalasso, from which we get in English catalyst. Catalyst. The dictionary defines catalyst as a substance usually used in small amounts relative to the reactions, reactants, that modifies and increases the rate of reaction without being consumed in the process. A catalyst is some small thing that you add to speed up or to create some reaction. And in the process, the catalyst itself is not changed. But what it reacts with, they are forever transformed. Isn't that what Christ has done for us? He has catalyzed us, in a sense, to God. Christ himself is not changed, but we are forever transformed. Let me close with this. Pastor James Van Tholen, whom I mentioned just a little bit earlier, he was a pastor of a church um, in Rochester, New York. He just happened to be born in the same year that I was born. But in 1998, at the age of 33, he was stricken with an aggressive and incurable form of cancer. He spent seven months in chemotherapy, at which point he became just well enough to preach once more. And so he gave this sermon, not entirely sure if he would ever preach again. And he said this in his sermon, and he was preaching on this particular text. He says this, So now I have a silly thing to admit. I don't think I ever realized the shocking and radical nature of God's grace, even as I preached it. And the reason I didn't get grace, I think, is that I assumed I still had about 40 years left. 40 years to unlearn my bad habits, 40 years to let my sins thin down and blow away, 40 years to be good to animals and pick up my neighbor's mail for them when they went on vacation. But that's not how it's going to go. Now I have months, not years. And now I have to meet my creator, who is also my judge. I have to meet God not later, but sooner. I haven't enough time to undo my wrongs. Not enough time to straighten out what's crooked. Not enough time to clean up my life. And that's what has scared me. How will I explain myself to God? How can I ever claim to have been what he called me to be? I don't know about you, but you know, when I read those words, it really resonated with me. Because I know that with each passing Sunday, I have yet once again failed to undo my wrongs. I have failed to straighten out what is crooked in my life. 
And I'm keenly aware that I'm running out of time. And like Pastor Tholen, I have to be reminded again and again and again that still, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Verse 10, for if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. Much more shall we be saved now that we are reconciled. We are saved by grace and we live by grace. This is our only hope. This is our only hope. This is our only hope. Believe the good news and be at peace with God. And enjoy the access by grace in which you stand. And have the happy certainty of sharing in the glory of God. Find meaning and endurance even in your suffering. Experience the love of God that has been poured into your hearts by the Holy Spirit. And now know that you are forever and irreversibly reconciled. The word of the Lord. Pray with me. Lord, it is far too easy for us to forget the the radicalness, the scandal of your grace. And so we thank you for reminding us once more that it is by grace that we are saved. And because of that, God, you have made possible so much more. So help us, God, to live into all that you have promised us, knowing, having the hope that your promises will come true. That you have, while we were hopeless, while we were powerless, while we were ungodly and enemies, you sent your son to die for us. Much more now that we have been reconciled. God, help us to believe this good news. Help us to believe this good news. And so demonstrate, God, and become the kind of people that you have called us to. We pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.